I'd like for you to open your Bibles once again to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. I started this message last week and I want to continue on it today. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, it says this, We love him because he first loved us. Amen. In essence, we are not able to love God unless he loves us. Would you agree? You are not capable, inherently capable of just loving God. Your ability to love God is in response to him loving you, which means that when a person experiences his love, whatever he does to affect your life, so that you respond in kind, that's hard to explain. Because you see, love is an easy word to use. It's a common word, one of the most common words in the English language. And it's so easy to use because it's the word we use to describe things that we find pleasure in. Whether it's we love to sing that particular hymn or we love to go to church, we love our old dog or we love our house or we love to go on vacation. We love a lot of things because we're capable of having pleasure in this world and having affection for things and, and finding happiness in things. We're able to do that. God has given us that kind of a capacity. And in the church, as God's people, church members, he brings us together and we often talk about what we love. We love to hear a good message, a good sermon. We love to get together with God's people. We love to fellowship. We love to sing. We talk about a lot of things that we love, but God tells us that not everything that we call love qualifies as love. It's a disturbing thought because Christian people have in their mind this idea that anything you do, which you do with your heart and you do it with gusto or affection, is love. It couldn't be anything else but love. And yet God doesn't see it that way. For example, I read this last week. You don't have to turn to it. Let me read to you once again from Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 31. Here's what he said. Talking about God's people approaching him to hear his word. He said, and they come unto you as the people cometh, and they sit before you as my people. And they hear your words, but they will not do them. Now, is that possible? Let's locate ourselves on common ground here. Is it possible to assemble ourselves together and hear a true word from God, but be unwilling to live that way? I want you to think with me for a minute. Is it possible for us as Christians having had a, a Christian experience or baptized or the light blew us off the chair, whatever it was, is it possible to approach God and hear what he says, but not be willing to do what he said? Now, is that possible? Okay, if it is possible, then the question would be, could that happen to you? Is it possible that you, now I grew up in a Christian church, I never paid much attention to it, but I could have grown up in any church and been the same way. Is it possible then that, that I have been a religious person my whole life, but my life doesn't witness to that? I mean, I still act the way I always acted, drink, cuss, smoke, rowdy, porno and all that. I mean, is it possible that even though I'm a member of a church and I go to all the meetings and hear this good word, that I'm still as I was? which means though I have heard it, I was unwilling to do it. Now that's a possibility. Therefore, it is a concern that we should all have because ye that stand take heed what? Lest you fall. So there is no assurance uh, that being in the right place that you will do the right thing. Are we together so far? All right, so he said now, my people come before you as my people should and as my people do. They hear your words, the sound of your words, but he says, but they will not do them. 
Then he says this. It was such a statement that I outlined it in yellow. He said, for with their mouth, they show much love. Now let's stop. With their mouth, they show much love, which means they speak the right things. They say things lovingly. We may close our eyes and raise our hands and say, I love you, Lord, and I lift my hands. Or thy loving kindness is better than life. Can you sing that and not love the Lord? Because if I can sing that and not truly love the Lord, then I must have a definition of love or I, somewhere down the line, I'm going to be in trouble because I'm going to miss it. I'm going to be a part of a large group of people who are taken for granted most of everything God ever said. Listen to it again. He said, my people come before you as my people do. And they hear the sound of your words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth, they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. The 10th commandment says, thou shalt not covet. You're not to live wanting something from somebody else all the time. But see, a lot of people are into religion for what they get out of it. I feel better about myself because I was here. At least I didn't stay home this morning. I came to church. I went through all the motions. I've learned the routine. I did all of that kind of stuff. I like what I did. I feel better about myself, but I'm not affected by it. So our question is, do we love the Lord? One of the ways that people are described is, boy, they love the Lord. What do you mean by that? Well, they're always in church. They're always singing. They're always helping. They've always got a smile on their face, and they might. But that doesn't mean you do, because with your mouth, you can show much love. With your face, you can show much love. However, how you do that. Is that not possible? So here's what God is saying. You can outwardly appear religious to man. Wait a minute. I've read that before. I've read that in Matthew 23. Jesus said that to the Pharisees. Outwardly, you appear righteous. Be said, but inside, you're corrupt. Now, these same people, I suppose, who could quote the Bible and preach the Bible, preachers are as guilty as anybody of this, preach the Bible and quote the Bible, yet their heart goeth after something else. Maybe the preacher is using a congregation. If he can get it to grow enough, his reputation will spread to a bigger church and he can get a better job. Maybe. That happens in a religious system. That's become a business. Christianity started out as a fellowship. When it went to Greece, it became a philosophy. And it went to Europe and it became a culture. When it got to America, it became a business, an enterprise. It functions the way most other businesses function. Love is not required just like God said to his people in the Old Testament offerings. Well, they bring their animals. They assemble before him. They go through the routines. They follow the law by every jot and tittle. They do exactly as they interpret every jot and tittle. And they did all of this. But like Malachi, the book of Malachi says, they were weary of it. They did it because they had to, not because they wanted to, because their heart was really not in it. God was not in focus in their life. They were not indebted to him. It was simply a system of something that has to do with him that people were involved in. And as far as loving the Lord, they really don't. Now you're in 1 John 4. Turn over the page to 2 John, well, chapter 1, I suppose. In verse 6, because here in one verse of Scripture in the Bible, God describes what love is. He said, and this is love, that we walk after his commandments. Would you agree with me this morning so far that love is something you do? God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave his only begotten son. First John writes, if you see a brother have need and you shut up a heart of compassion from him to want to meet his needs, 
How does the love of God dwell in you? If the love of God dwells in you, it does something. In some way it expresses itself because that's the way God's love operates. And if that same love is in you, it operates the way he wants it to for the purposes that he wants it to operate. I don't know how many people really love the Lord. I really don't know. I'm not able to say. I know that love is used a lot. There are three Greek words for love. You know, the New Testament was written in Greek. There's three words for love. One is eros. From eros, we get the word erotic love, which is a sexual, sensual thing. It has nothing to do with love and compassion. It is simply sensual. From eros, we get the whole idea of Cupid. Cupid has nothing to do with affections other than sexual attractions. But people like that, so we'll leave that alone and go on to the next word is phileo. Phileo is a word which means a kiss, or it's how you would greet people you're favored with. You wouldn't kiss your enemies, but you would kiss your friends. It's a word that has to do with being around people you're fond of. It would be Phi Beta Kappa with Phi Beta Kappa, Democrats with Democrats, and certain religious groups, Baptists with Baptists, and Methodists with Methodists, and so forth. We just seem to like of kind, and we feel comfortable around people that we like. And the word phileo has to do with like. It also has to do with affection because you, you're affectionate towards people. A lot of people you're affectionate towards, you really wouldn't die for them. You wouldn't lay your life down for them, but you like them. Then the third word, the loftiest word, a word which only belongs to God is the word agape or agapeo. And it's the kind of love that comes from God. Two of those words, phileo and, and agape, are the Bible words for love. And a lot of what people call love today is phileo. It's the second word. You remember the time that Peter and Jesus met on the seashore in John chapter 21? And Jesus said to Peter after they had eaten fish on the seashore, he looked at Peter and he said, Peter, I remember Peter had just denied the Lord three times, he even cursed to save himself at the expense of being related to Jesus. I don't know. Now here they are face to face on the seashore. You can hear the, the wood crackling in the fire. You can see the smoke kind of going up in the air. And there's Jesus on one side looking at Peter on the other with the other disciples sitting around. And Jesus looks at Peter and he said, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me? Peter said, I like you. I filio you. Jesus said, do you love me more than these? He said, I like you. You're my friend. Jesus said the third time, he said, am I your friend? You fully owe me? Peter was thinking, how can I say that I love somebody that I turned against? I used profanity to deny I even knew them. How can I now say I love him? I'm looking at him. He knows I don't love him like that. He knows my heart. Because he said twice, you know, use the word know twice in John 21 or about, Lord, you know all things and you know that I phileo you. But I'm not committed to you. I thought I was. I thought when I left my fishing business and left everything to come and follow you and, and all of that, I said to you, I'll die for you. Jesus said, you'll deny me three times. Oh, no, not me. And all these memories are sitting there haunting him while he's looking at God in a body, Emmanuel. And Jesus said, do you, you really like me? See, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22 says, if any man like, says love in the Greek, but it's the word phileo. If any man love not the Lord, let him be anathema. If you don't enjoy the Lord, you're cursed. Isn't that hard? I mean, if you don't just like him and enjoy his fellowship and his presence, you may not be fully committed to him, but you've got to like him. There's got to be some kind of divine attraction between you and the Lord, which is going to lead, like with Peter, is going to lead you to a totally committed life. Peter left his boat and everything he could and followed Jesus and when harassed and persecuted, but he realized he didn't love the Lord. He liked what he was doing. He liked the fellowship he had with Jesus and somehow the effect of it all. But when it came down to his life, 
I don't know about that. Now, we might not want to admit that as Christian people. Because we want to be told we love God and we want to be told that everything is fine with us. And if you teach on these things, refer it to somebody else, not us, because we all love the Lord. Now, again, 2 John, is it still in there where he said, a man who loves me does what? He does what I say. He lives on my terms. For he's got to find out what they are first. And once he finds out what they are, he's willing to live that way. Go back to 1 John 4. Verse 7. Now let's run down through here and look at the things that Jesus said. And let's measure ourselves this morning. Let this word be a plumb line that God is dropping in the middle of this assembly or tape line. And let's measure ourselves. Let's not save anything that's wrong in our lives. Let's let it go. Let's let the truth be the truth. Let's admit, at least within our minds and hearts, what's right and where we're right and wrong. Let's do that. Let's be honest with this today. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Can we say the opposite then? Folks, listen to me, all of you. I am not trying to be hard. I'm certainly not trying to be harsh. I am trying to be honest. I'm not afraid of anything God says. If the truth hurts, let it hurt, let it bleed, and let's fix it. I don't want to play games with my mind, and I certainly don't want to play games with your minds. If you're wrong, you need to be corrected. If you're playing a game, you need to stop it. Because eternity is a long time. It's not that far away. But he said, he that loveth is born of God and what God? Does your Bible say knoweth? He that loveth knows. Now, what did Jesus mean in John 7 then when he said to a whole bunch of people, I never knew you? But they were ministries. They cast out devils. They worked miracles. They did a lot of wonderful things, but Jesus said, I never knew you. Didn't he say that? I never knew you. But the Bible says a man who loves God knows God and will be known by the Lord. It'll be evident because love not only does something, but love causes something to be done. Amen? God's love is always expressed in something he does. And he that loveth knoweth. And he that loveth shall be loved. That means that God is going to do something to make evident the fact that he loves the Lord. That he won't flaunt that because he realizes that he was saved by grace, not by his efforts and merits. But verse 8, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Some of you are going to be squirming in your seats. And I might be squirming in my shoes with you. So be it. Verse 9, In this was manifested the love of God toward us. This is how he did it. This is what he did. And he did this, Romans 5, 8, While we were yet sinners, Christ loved us. The Bible says that, all right? And this was manifested or made evident, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Was it not Jesus who said, I came to seek and save the lost? Was it not Jesus who said that I lay down my life for sinners? Was it not also Jesus who said, I do what the father gives me to do? Was it not the Father's goal to save you or to provide a way for you to be related to him again? Sin cut us off from God. Didn't it? Isaiah 59, 2, your sin has separated between you and God. We could not come to God. We had no mediator, but Jesus came and became one. And he was perfect. He was holy. The Bible said God made him to be sin. That doesn't mean he was a sinner. It means he was a sin offering. God made him to be a sin offering. 
in the place of the sinner, Jesus was offered. And he could be offered because he was without sin. And because he was without sin, he was an acceptable sacrifice. He was the lamb that God provided for the sins of his people so that through the death of this lamb and their belief in him, that God could call all of those who believed unto him, plant them in his courts, and let them experience all the good things he has for them. Now he did that because he loved you. There was nobody in this room who deserved this. Nobody was good enough for it. Jesus Christ died for us because it was God's will for him to do so, and he was willing to do his Father's will even to the death of a cross because he was committed and surrendered fully and totally to whatever God wanted. If it was for a bunch of sinners, he would do it because it was God's will. The highest and most lofty life a man can live is to live finding and then living the will of God. The whole purpose in your mind being renewed. The renewing of your mind is so you can know what the perfect will of God is because that will locate you, that will measure you. It's just how serious or sincere you are. And a man who finds his word and lives a word is a man who loves. Because it takes all you've got. You've got to surrender, let go of stuff, get stuff out of the way. No more excuses, no more. You just surrender yourself to God and do it. I, like you, don't know very many people like that. I know a lot of good people. Fine, kind, and loving, caring people in a lot of ways. But I'm talking this morning about the one supreme love that is necessary and vital for us not only to know God, but to love God. It's the love that comes from Him. It is by Him. He's the only source of it. And he showed us how he loves by what he did. And that's how we show him how we love him by what we do. Amen. My people come before you as my people do. They hear your words, but they don't love you. Oh, they say they do. And if you told them that they did, you're in a war and they're going to throw you out of the church. But the fact of it is, if they hear his words, but they're unwilling to do them, it's like he said, for with their mouth, they do all the love stuff. They do all of that, but their hearts are covetous. Verse 10. Herein is love. Not that we love him, not that we love God, but that God loved us. It has to be that way. That's like verse 19. He does it first. If he doesn't do that first, it won't work. Love is a choice that I make to commit myself to someone else or something else, like the church, for its well-being or its glory. It's a choice I make. When it comes to God, it's a choice I make. A choice I make. Nobody makes this choice for me. I live by choices. And it's a choice I make to commit myself to God, to do His will, and to walk in His ways just like Jesus did. That's a pretty narrow definition. And I'm not asking you to believe that's the right definition. But if it's right, if it's right, it explains a whole lot of things. If love is the commitment of my life to surrender my will to God, to do His will, to agree, to walk in His ways, whatever I got to let go of and lifestyle I got to change, to walk in His ways on His terms, if I'm willing to do that, then I love the Lord because that's what I think love is. It's a commitment. If there's no commitment, there's no love. Take marriage again. Remember I mentioned that last week? Well, we got a lot of young people here that are getting close. Praise the Lord. And you're really getting close. I would never marry anybody that I did not know was committed in this marriage to be unto me what the Almighty God wants them to be. Your first love is not a husband or a wife or your family, your kids, or your life. Your first love is the one that turns your life around. That's to God. Amen. Revelation 2. To leave your first love is something else gets in the way and your commitment is to that and no longer to God. But if a woman is going to be 
the kind of wife any man would want. She has to love God more than she loves you. And because of God and her commitment to his word and his way, she applies the things that he says in his book, in, in his word, towards her husband for his good, to be his helpmate. How does that sound today in this politically ignorant world? Remember a few years ago at a Baptist convention, they made a statement that wives should submit to their husbands like the Bible says. And they had a blow up. You would have thought that there's a terrorist activity in some kind of a convention, a church convention. Listen, you can read that and they probably read it. Wives submit, but they're not going to do that, are they? They're not going to reduce themselves to some inferior role to some man and let them walk over my headpiece. That isn't what is said at all. In fact, a man cannot be what God wants him to be if he's married, if he's not the head of his house. And he's not the head of his house if his wife won't let him. Yeah, she's always disgusted and mad and angry and fussing and always with that mouth, running that mouth like it's a NASCAR special and putting him down all the time and he's wrong. If she's constantly doing that, she's not loving her husband. She loves herself. He's not doing what she wants him to do for herself. She's measuring who he is by the pleasure she gets from him. If he's not performing for her on her standards, she's running that mouth. Vice versa. How about the other side, girls, on Father's Day? <laughs> A man who pays no attention to his wife and has no concern about her needs is not affectionate or in some way tender towards her or caring about how she feels about things. He doesn't love her. He loves himself. He can go through all the actions of acting like he loves. He can take her out in public and smile and they can hold hands. You can do all of that without loving your wife or your husband. A prostitute can love. She pretends. She acts like it's true. She gets covetous. She gets something from it. Her pleasure is not in what she's doing. It's in the money she gets so she can go buy and spend and look the way she wants to look. She's willing to do anything for that. There's a lot of prostitute religions around. People are willing to pretend like they mean it when they don't. Take parenting. How many of you know that when you bring a child into this world, it's a project? They don't come with instructions. Never seen any born that had something tied around a leg, some kind of a divine bow or something around a leg, you untie it, God tells you how to raise this one. And unfortunately, they're not all the same. They all have the same nature, but they're not all the same personalities. Now, if love means to commit, just like a husband would commit himself to his wife's, whatever the Bible says, and a woman commits herself to that man, you got a good marriage coming. That'll all get worked out because of God. How about a child? You got a child you brought into the world and mom and dad's looking at this little baby. And you realize this, for the child's well-being and for the good of this child, we must commit ourselves to training and teaching this child the way God says we should. If we don't, we don't love this child. We tolerate this child. We put up with this child. We're so glad when this child finally gets raised and gets out of the house, but we don't love it. We not only derive no pleasure from this child, and a lot of times we don't even like this child. Like I said the other day, there's been many times I've felt like a child was about to say, I didn't ask to be born in this family because I would have probably said at that time, it's a real good thing you didn't. Because <laughs> yes, would have been no. But that all works out too. If you love your child, you're concerned about what your child's doing. You're concerned about their manners, their politeness. You teach them responsibility, whether it's cleaning up your room or brushing your teeth or raking the yard or what. For their well-being down the road when they enter into the workforce, it is your responsibility to commit yourself to the well-being of this child to teach and train them the right way to live. You train a child up the way he is to go. When he's old, he won't depart from it. I think that probably refers more to manners, social properness, 
There are so many rude people in this world. I stand here talking for, and I've had kids walk between me and somebody else and get those little elbows out there and get through there. That's not good. If you let a child continue to do that, you don't really care about how that child grows up. You don't care. If you tell your child to stop doing something and they keep on doing it, I'm going to tell you, you don't love your children. I know what that sounds like. I'm going by the Bible here. To love your children is to commit yourself to their well-being. You correct them. Listen to what one of the things the Bible says here. In Proverbs 13 to verse 24, you don't have to turn to this. I've got it on my trusty computer printout, all right? <laughs> he that spareth his rod hateth his son. Whoa. What's Dr. Spock think about that? Listen to me, time out. Has a generation of parents been taught to hate? Has it not found its way into the pulpit? That if you have to spank a child, it just shows how pitiful a person and so forth. I saw a child kick her mother once. And the mother was in this liberal way of thinking that, uh, you know, you should never have to resort to force to correct a child. And this child knew that. Right in his shin. He kicked it right in the shin. And I'm thinking, oh, please do something. Because I can't handle that. I was sitting in a prison one day waiting to see somebody at the prison. And there was a lady there with a child. It must have been the father's child or something. She told him to leave that ashtray alone. This little fellow, he'll be in there someday. And he reared back and he missed her by just inches. I mean, he swung right for her nose. She couldn't do anything with him because she doesn't love a child. She'll love him. He'll aggravate her her whole life. And when he gets on the street, he's never known what love is. He'll never know how to love woman. He'll make babies, but he'll never be a father. He'll bring into this world little clones, be just like him until society gets full of this stuff and you can't do anything about it. All these little babies that are born out of wedlock today, they're all born with a spirit of rejection because they weren't wanted. They came out of an erotic moment and they're not wanted. You're spoiling my tomorrows. Now I got to live with this kid because they don't love. One of the signs of the last day is without natural affection. Natural affection is a love for family. Abortion. What's that abortion doctor who was sadly killed in his church one day not long ago? 60,000 abortions. How do you terminate 60,000 babies? Some of them were viable. They could live outside the womb, living, breathing, and you kill them for covetousness, for money. But it's the last days. I mean, it's happening while we're talking today. The signs of the end time are all around us. People are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Their commitment is to their vacations and their boats and their trailers. And, and if you got all of that, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about people who live for pleasure, who live to gamble, who live to get something for nothing, who just their whole life is 10 hour days and three weekend days so we can have fun. And they get so offended when they go to church and hear the word of God. Most of the time. They get so offended because the word is sort of an interruption to their fun. I don't love this word. I love me. I love me. I like what I can do. I like the feeling I get when I get money or I win something or I go places or I'm laying on a beach or I'm driving this. And when I get home, I'm bored. and I'm looking forward to the next adventure in my life. People grow up like that. Somewhere in their past, somewhere, somewhere a long time ago, somebody didn't teach those people what true value of life is. They didn't love them. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. You got to like that. Betimes means early. Or listen to this, foolishness. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. I know. Not because I had seven children, but because I are one. <laughs> foolishness. 
It's bound. Things like not paying attention, goofiness, ignorance and all, just cool <laughs> foolishness. Things that are anti against God. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction driveth it far from him. You don't tolerate that. If I was starting all over again, I would do a lot better, I think. And a lot of you that have older kids, there's not much you can do there, but for you young ones, your child is something that God gave you and he wants you to give it back to him as a citizen of his kingdom and to train him and point him to God and to correct him and tell him why as you walk along the way, Deuteronomy says, as you lie down at night, as you sit and eat, you're talking about spiritual things to your child because this is what God will use. Now, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, the word foolishness also means folly. Listen to the way folly is used in another place in Proverbs. He shall die without instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. I have never noted in reading anything about history and falling away and apostasy of the amount of falling away I'm seeing today amongst younger people. There's this meanness and this angriness and this defiance of authority. Ask any school teacher how often kids cuss in the classroom and throw stuff and you can't do anything about it. Their parents were like that and if you were to uh, deal with one of these kids, their parents would want to put you in jail. How dare you correct our children? We don't want our children corrected. We want our children to be ugly and vulgar, and when they die, we want them to go to hell. That's what we want to happen to them. We want them to die and perish. So don't you correct our children. Now, they don't say that, do they? But that's what God would say. But love, love is something that in one sense is easy because in some ways love is very natural. But in other ways, it's very hard. For example, back in 1 John chapter 4, no man has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God dwells in us. Isn't that something? If we love each other, not try to hurt each other, not lie to each other, not cheat. You see, listen, if love is a commitment, then it is the very reason for loyalty, faithfulness, compassion, and honor. It's the reason we are decent people. It's the reason we're fair. Remember the Ten Commandments, the first four had to do with God? No other gods, no images, don't use his name wrong, Sabbath day, the first four. Remember what the next five were? Thou shalt not kill, commit adultery, steal. You shall not bear false witness, you not covet. All of those have to do with how we relate to each other. Remember the man in Matthew 22 said, what's the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus said, the first and great commandment. Now you won't find in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where it says, number one, but you will find it implied because Jesus brought out the deeper meaning of what was in the Older Testament. He said, the first commandment, the great one is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And the second one is like it. That is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself because God so loved you when you were unloving and undeserving that he did something for you. In like manner, you love others like that. Didn't Jesus say, as I have loved you, love others? A new commandment I give unto you, you love others like I have loved you. How can we do that? Well, you can't unless you love him. You can't. You can try. You can teach on it. You can make booklets and pamphlets. And you can put those together and you can have little studies and conventions all about something about love. But the fact of it is, if he hasn't loved you, you haven't experienced that. It hasn't transformed and changed your life. You are un unable to love others like that. Now, if you can't love others like that, then the Bible's misleading us. It is God who is at work in you. It is God who loves through you. All you have to do is yield. And quit looking at other people in terms of whether they're good enough or not. You love them because they have souls. They're human beings. They don't deserve your love. We didn't deserve his. 
It's all a matter of someday you sitting down and looking at yourself and asking yourself the question, do I really love the Lord or do I like Christianity? Am I truly committed to Jesus Christ? If I am, why am I always, why do you have to preach about that? Why, why am I complaining? If I really love the Lord, why do I complain about what he said in the Bible? Why am I always trying to make excuses to why that doesn't have to be for me right now? Like a head covering. I know how people feel about that. I can see it. It's in there. But there's something about, I don't know if anybody, well, you're not into it because you don't love it. Jesus said, no other gods. Your first love is him. If you can't love him, you can't love others. And listen to me, if you can't love others, then he does not dwell in you. Dwell means to abide. Listen to this. Verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Does your Bible say that? Would you turn to John 14? He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. Dwelleth means abide. The realm of your living existence, how you are and so forth, abiding, dwelling. Y'all familiar with the 91st Psalm? He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide. Well, the words are connected, obviously. Dwelling is a choice. God doesn't make you dwell with him. In fact, he doesn't even ask everybody or invite everybody to dwell with him. Love is a difficult thing to define in some ways. I don't know why God loves me. I believe he does. I believe God will not leave me alone the rest of my life. I don't believe he'll ever let me go. I believe he cares enough about me that he has committed himself to my well-being to get me to heaven on his terms. In fact, I believe every son that he receives, he help me chastises. That he corrects everybody he receives. He doesn't correct everybody. People live and die in churches and never change. They're never affected by God. Never. They sing the same hymns. You go the same places you do. They never change. But every son that he receives, or if I may say it, you can handle it. Everybody that he loves, he changes. He doesn't allow you to have foul, sour attitudes long. He deals with you. He puts you on your back or upside down and deal with you. But he'll deal with you. Because God is at work in you what? If he started a work, in Philippians 1, if he started a work, is he going to finish it? Well, now let me ask you, is he doing a work in your life this morning? Is he? Because I'm talking about something, God dwelling inside of me. Christ dwells in your heart by faith. The work he's doing on the inside is to change me from glory to glory to glory. He sets me before his word so that I may come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. Who else can do that but God? Why else would he do it except for one reason? He committed himself to me when he called me. This is one of those things you want to go to the back of the woods and sit out and weep that such a sorry soul as I would have such love from such a divine being that he bypassed a lot of people to get to me. Why? I don't know. I wouldn't have. Would you pick you? No. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound to save a noble soul as I. I once was not so good, but now I'm pretty hot. <laughs> Couldn't see well, but now I'm real clear. God bless me. Thank God for me. Do me. Vote for me. Put me in the front seat. Make sure my name is mentioned. Notice me or I won't come back. 
Because you see, I don't love you, I love me. I fight and fuss and fume because I love me. When I'm offended and I throw a fit, it's because I am offended and because I love me. And I'm not willing to put this on the cross. This is too classy to put on the cross. I'm going to fuss and fight and fume and blow. The church has been so full of this for so many years. We bite and devour one another because we don't love each other. We love ourselves. I love you as long as you perform for me. We find fault with every other church that's not like us. We find fault with other people. We find fault with the Iranians to the Russians to Africans. We find, you know, everybody's not like us. Because we don't know what the love of God is. You think God loves various people from various places in the world? Does he? Is he in you? One of the evidences of his dwelling presence in you is your ability to love those people also. They don't deserve it. You don't either. It's the biggest subject in all the Bible. It's the one all-encompassing subject in all of Scripture that supersedes everything else is love. Not just passions, but agape. It's the sole basis for your ability to be what God wants you to be. You can't be anything unless God first causes that to happen. And he does that for one reason. Because he loves you. Why? I don't know. We like a lot of people, but God loves us. The Bible also says he likes us. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee, we like that, don't you? What if he wasn't in the midst of you? Would you love him anyway? Well, I don't know. I mean, I can't see anybody's heart. Let me say this too about this subject. Teaching on, on love, I started out, and the title of the message, if you stop this thing and look at the title of it, it is about God's response to our love. And we haven't even got to that. I'll tell you why, because in researching and in studying a subject that you think you know so much about, there's so many different ways you can go and so many different things he says, and you want to include all of that because everything's important. It's all important. I remember working on these messages. I thought, will I ever get to what I want to say? Because it was simple when I first started. Look at all the things God does in response to us being willing to love him. Wow. But before you get there, you got to define what love is. Because everybody thinks that because they go to church, they love God. Or they think that because they exist, God loves them for no reason. Now, he doesn't love us for cause of some reason of our own. But I can only tell you this, if you can handle it, whom God loves, he changes. He changes them so he will not have to judge them in the last days. Amen. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 11. The Bible says, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Now listen. But when we are judged... God does something so that we will not be condemned with the rest of the world. Why you as an exception? And turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. The word is also discerned. If you saw yourself like God sees you and you would reach a verdict against yourself, you would not cause God to reach a verdict against you. He gives you the opportunity of changing first. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, when God deals with us, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be what? Well, let me ask you something. Is God chastening the whole world? Well, why is he chastening you if he is? Why do you have a heart to want to hear and be here? Maybe you're struggling this morning. We all struggle with some things, but maybe you're wrestling with some things this morning. At least you're here. Why are you here? Do you believe God brought you here? Or wherever you go, do you believe that God has given you reasons to hear his word? Did you know that God never gives you one reason in the Bible to be cool or to be bad? He never honors anybody that's lying and tough and mean and can whip people 
All of those folks are without love. And to emulate them or to want to be like that, you're missing the whole point of what God is all about. God is not about hurting and harming and being mean and ugly and hating. God is about loving and changing. I said it last week about our faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word. God says a lot of things like divine healing. I want to be well. Not because I just feel better when I'm well and function better when I'm well. That's obvious. I want to be well because Jesus died that I might be well. What do you say in Psalm 103? He said, he forgiveth all our iniquities and in the same verse and heals all our diseases. I want mine healed too. He paid quite a price for this to be possible. Now, if I love him, I love what he loves. I want what he wants. Does he want me well? Does he? If he wants me well, I want to love him enough to do whatever I have to do to bring into my life what he's promised. Jesus never told anybody to be sick. Jesus said, pray thy will be done on this earth. Are you going to be sick in heaven? He said, pray that. But it's so cloudy and so murky, we've been talked out of it or people just can't accept that because God doesn't love you that much. God doesn't love you enough to supply all of your needs. God doesn't love you enough to deliver you from all this junk in the world. Come on. Yes, he does. And the people that talked us out of it didn't love the Lord either. The people who hid all of these things from us in our past, they didn't love the Lord. They loved themselves. They liked the security of their job, knowing if they said things that offended you, they might get fired. No wonder the church has become a prostitute. We just pretend. We act like it's true. I'm not saying you. I'm just saying we editorially. We've gone from a fellowship to a business. And we function for the profit. Covetousness. Because we don't love the Lord. Go back to John chapter 14. Verse 15, if you love me, what does he say do? What does that mean? It means be faithful. Not just memorize what the commandments are, but live it. And verse 21, he that hath my commandments, how do you get them? Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, stay with me, I'm teaching you. How do you get his commandments? He has to give them to you. You can have eyes to see and not see, Right? You can have ears to hear and not hear what was said. God has to reveal these things to your heart. Otherwise, they're just Bible verses. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them. Keepeth them. I looked up the word keepeth. And the word keepeth means, in two different translations, it means to obey, which is simple. Keepeth means to obey. He that has my commandments, I've been taught, I've been in church, I see it clearly, I ponder this, and I thought, oh man. If God is stirring my heart about that verse and my opposition to it, I must repent and turn away from my resistance and yield myself to the doing of that word. Otherwise, I cannot say I love the Lord. So he says in verse 21, he says, He that has my commandments and keepeth them or obeys them, he it is that what? Loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Do you think that is a relationship? Let me ask you another question. What then defines a true relationship with God? Love. Love that is expressed in what you do. What do you do? You keep his word. And when you begin to live according to his word and rule out everything that's in opposition to it, quit making mistakes and be willing to live in his word, what did he say Jesus will do in response? He said he will love me. 
What will that do to me? Change my life? Not only love me, but he will also what? Does your Bible say manifest himself? How else could we know him? How else could you ever say you know the Lord unless he did that? And he doesn't do that unless you respond to his love by keeping his commandments. You know, we talk, people talk about oh, that faith message, that faith, that faith message has really been a lifeline to heaven. I know it's been abused, but the whole purpose of faith is to love God as a way of responding to God. Being faithful, loyal to God, to his word. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man loved me, now here you can check yourself out. If a man loved me, he will keep my words. And this is the response, the title of the message, of your heavenly father to him. He will keep my words and my father will love him. And here comes that relationship again. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. That's the dwelling. That's the deep dwelling of God in a man's life, a man's heart. Christ dwells in your hearts by faith. You've got to believe this. But you show what you believe by what you do. You show what you love by what you do. It's all about your life and your choices. You read 1 Corinthians 13, it's a love chapter. And you'll find if you do anything else, for any reason other than I want to do this because I love the Lord, it is for nothing. Faith to move mountains. And you love not the Lord, you didn't do it as an honor and glory to Him, but because your ministry does this, it worked. But it profited you nothing. How can that be? Because if it's not love, it's not accepted. If it's not because of your hookup and your relationship with God, your feelings and compassion and your loyalty and your faith towards him, if it's not the reason you're living the way you're living, it's vanity. Those are fighting words to most Christian people. But I'm going to stay with the book here because I got to live by it too. It's how we relate to him. It's how we love him. It's how he loves us. This is how it works. Now I want you to turn to 1 John 2. And look at verse 15. 1 John 2 and verse 15. Love not the world. Now what is the world? That's everything that people want. The clothes, the style, those tight jeans, those low-cut britches, that vulgar look, that nasty look, that tough guy look, to be admired by the world, or people scared of it, be intimidating. If people want that, they pursue that, they commit themselves to being like that. Or they commit themselves to the educational process to become a somebody and hope they can work enough church in that to have some kind of a moral flavor to it. But listen to this. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. You're around them. You don't have to love them. If any man is committed to this world in its ways, the Father does not commit his love to that person. Whew. Let's read that again. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Notice verse 16, for all that is in the world. And the first thing he mentions is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and being somebody. The pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. I have a disturbing fact I want to read to you. It's about the effect the world has through an area of lust, which is called pornography. And everybody knows what it is. I don't need to describe that. There was a survey taken. This is a survey research group that did a survey of 1,000 church members in various groups, congregations. They asked 1,000 people to respond, and apparently 1,000 of them did. And here's the conclusion of 1,000 people, ordinary church folks just like us. 
He said, in a poll of 1,000 respondents, 50% of Christian men, how many is that? Is that half? One out of two? That would be quite a number, wouldn't it? One more and you'd have a majority. Listen to this, 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women were found to be addicted to pornography. Now you can't love how you feel before you love God. And if you love God, you can't love that other stuff. But if you put that other stuff in your life anyway, you don't love God. Did he say love not the world? The lust of your flesh, the enticement, the erotic sensuality of pornographic portrayals, people doing things for your pleasure, they get paid for it. You're the victim. And the sensuality you get, probably the worst part, as I've been told, is the images that are in your mind. As you go through the day, you keep seeing over and over those same things you saw. It's like poison. You can't think clean thoughts because of unclean thoughts. But listen to this. It goes on to say this. Many point to the internet for the pervasive problem of sexual addiction. Technology, the internet, has allowed pornography to flood the marketplace beyond a controllable level. I don't know what you all do with your computers when you're alone or these high-tech cell phones that can go into dark places. And you can entertain, you can fellowship with the power of darkness. You've got a will, you don't have to do that, but you choose to do it anyway because you want to. That's a great effect, control of your life. And you think that somehow or the other, all of that stuff can be your reality too. But you can't. It's just like these games of killing, these killing games that kids play. Kids don't go outside and play anymore. They're getting to be little chunky kids because they're sitting in the house all day playing with their thumbs. Playing all these games of killing things. Space invaders. Monsters. People that take people and throw them over buildings. And, and the wildest, most demonic stuff. They're committed to it. They get in games and contests to see if they can be the best. There's something really wrong in Christian homes when that kind of stuff is coming out of them. Somebody has forgotten their first love. And if it belongs to any of you in here, so be it. You're guilty. Listen to this. He goes on to say, in April, more than a third of the U.S. Internet audiences visited sites that fit into the online adult category. A 2006 study found that 73% of U.S. adults think that viewing pornographic websites and videos is morally unacceptable. Young people 18 to 34 thought it was all right. It's a generation. It's a generation. And the Bible speaks of a generation to come that will evolve in the darkness. While I'm speaking, while I'm loving you this morning, telling you the truth. You can't change people's lives, but you can sure tell them the truth. Now, now listen to this. We're almost done. The Christanet.com survey found 60% of Christian women admitted to significant struggles with lust. 40% saying that they were involved in sexual sins in the past year and 20% struggling with looking at pornography on an ongoing basis. We are seeing an escalation to the problem in both men and women who regularly attend church. I don't want to be naive. I'd hate to think that sitting before me this morning are people who are addicted to pornography and it's destroying your souls and eventually your homes and your children. It's a demon. It's a spirit. You give place to the devil, he comes in. I don't care how addicted anybody is and how bad anybody in this room was or has been. You can be forgiven, you can be cleansed, you can be delivered. But it'll never be any good if in the process of all this you don't turn to God and ask him for his forgiveness. Just some hearty 
effort at, I'm not going to look at them. I'm not going to look at that site. I'm going to put a tape over that number, whatever, however how you get there. But you simply tell yourself, this is destroying my soul. God will judge me for this. And if he's no longer chastening me about this, I'm in trouble. I don't want to die. I don't want to perish. I don't want to wind up in a casket lost. I have an opportunity right now to hear and respond to God. God, give me grace to take advantage of it, to hate my sins and to hate the weakness of my choices and help me to do right. There's not a vile enough, nasty enough soul in this world that God can't save and cleanse. Not a one. There's not a perverted soul of any kind of sexual fantasy and foolishness from homosexual lesbianism. There's nothing that God cannot save and fix and treat you like you never did that. Like you never did it. Because he loves the people he brings to him. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, in these last days when unclean spirits are everywhere in this world, seeking whom they can destroy, whose minds they can warp, whom they can mislead, deliver us. If there are those in this room before whom I stand who have been caught this morning, at least caught in their minds, they recognize or realize a weakness in their life, I ask you to give them strength to overcome it, to be turned away from it, and to be restored to fellowship with you and to be thankful for the love that you have for us. I pray this prayer as we leave, Lord, I ask you to teach us how to respond to your people in a loving way. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen.